Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, there are two songs in my head as I've been getting ready for this episode. One is by Glenn Campbell, Bonaparte's Retreat. Are you familiar with that one? No, I'm not. Oh, I met the girl I love in a town way down in Dixie. No, it doesn't no. ring the bell? Okay. No. And this might be more your style because you're a young whippersnapper. Uh, ABBA had a song called Waterloo. That, Na- that one I'm familiar with, yes. Napoleon did surrender, and that's what we're looking at today. It's all about Napoleon, and what was it, the, the Bonaparte conspiracy? Conspiracy, that's right. It's we're, we're, We want to pull it apart a little bit. Uh, this is one of my... Oh, pull it apart. <laughs> I saw what you Well, said. no, that was unintended. So the the point behind all of this is let's look at a historical figure and see what we can learn from this. So uh, this is the the autopsy of Napoleon. And look, he's one of the greatest celebrated generals uh, of all time. He he was a Corsican by birth. He was born in 1769 uh, and moved to France at the age of nine. So now I'll put the disclaimer in first. So this first part, I, I always think to know about someone's death, you need to know about their life. Mm-hmm. If you are just interested about you know the death and the autopsy, skip this chapter, jump into the second chapter where we get into the autopsy findings. I'm a pathologist. I understand you want to go straight for the money. That's fine. (laughs) So I always think this is his life because this will explain the last chapter that we we discuss and goes into conspiracy theories. Uh, And this is why if you know about his life, you can understand where these come from. And, And so now he was educated as a Frenchman. He says that he felt like a foreigner. Uh, and his mother and father uh, moved when he was the age of nine. He ended up having seven sisters and one brother. He was educated at the Military College of Brienne uh, for five years and then one year in the Military Academy in Paris. And during this time, when he was at the age of 15, his father died, and he became the head of the family. Now, he graduated 42nd of class of 52 students at the Military Academy, so Hard to know. I'm guessing his father's death had an impact on that. But at the Mm. same point in time, sometimes grades are just grades. Uh, They don't mean much more than that. But he did, he was known to like education and reading. He was uh, particularly into strategy and tactics. And by the age of 19 in 1788, there was the undercurrent of the French Revolution. Now, Napoleon was a believer in political change at the time, but he wasn't actively going to replace the monarchy. But through the years, he ended up getting to the level of commander in the army and spanning over a decade. And then in in 1799, there was the coup d'etat. And Napoleon ends up seizing political power and becoming the leading political figure at the age of 30. Mm. Now, it's quite amazing because then this led to the Napoleonic Wars. And he started wars with pretty much almost everyone in Europe, as far as I can tell. Yeah, Austria, Great Britain, Germany, Turkey, neutral powers. By 1804, he crowns himself Emperor of France. You're and- making me feel like an underachiever. <laughs> well, it's incredible. It, 
At this time, he, he's also reorganized the military. He's changed tactics. At this time, he then is having constant wars with the British, with Russia, with Austria again, Italy. There's a Russian-Prussian alliance. And, and during this time, there is uh, the Austri Austrian minister to France. His name is Clemens von Metternich. Uh, and he's trying to negotiate with Napoleon and, you know, saying we need you need to have peace. And then there's a classic response from Napoleon. You cannot stop me. I spend 30,000 men a month. Now, in those days, these were wars that would, would happen, where battles would happen on a day. Few people would die, but it wasn't such a World War I, World War II, you know, death to destruction, you know, society's collapsing. And so that's a remarkable statement. It also suggests that he may not have had the huge care for his soldiers that you would have, you want in a general, but wow. he was successful. And whether it's, you know, will, determination, divide and providence, he was successful and he saw himself as the French reincarnate of Julius Caesar or, or, or Alexander the Great. And the problem is, he's right, because that's the conversation that we have. His name is right with those generals. and But it wasn't without the drawbacks. There was some defeats. And so the song where you talked about, what was the name of that first Waterloo. one? Waterloo. No, no, the oh, other no, one. Bonaparte's Retreat. Retreat. Yes. So in 1812... He believed that Russia and, and the British were making an alliance. And so he thought the best thing is to take on Russia. So he got 500,000 soldiers, which was the largest army the world had ever seen at the time. And he took on to go and fight Russia. Now, this was called the Grand Army. But the problem with fighting Russia, as anyone in history would know, was it's an enormous land mass. And the roads at the time were poor, transportation is difficult, and you need to feed and supply an army that large to take on the, the Russian military. And so what happened was, to make things worse, when Napoleon's going to fight these wars, the general uh, Mikhail uh, Kutuzov is in perpetual retreat because they can. And so they also have a scorched earth policy, meaning that anytime they retreat, they burn everything. So Napoleon not only is having to bring his own supplies, because he he's just getting territory, but not anything worth value. And so they could do this. Now, there was a battle. It's called the Battle of uh, Borodino. And this was 110 kilometers or 70 miles from, from Moscow. So they've gotten pretty far in. The problem is there's terrible losses. There's French lose 10,000 dead, 20,000 wounded. The Russians lose 15,000 dead and 35,000 wounded all in one day. Oh. And Napoleon said of this, Of the 50 battles I have fought, the most terrible was that before Moscow. The French showed themselves to be worthy victors and the Russians can rightly call themselves invincible. So. This then leads to the advance on Moscow to take the capital, which they got there and found the, almost the entire population had been evacuated. Food supplies had, had gone, but they had left alcohol. And so obviously the army drinks the alcohol and causes problems. 
But then they also have Russian patriots set fire to the city. That also includes the Grand Army's winter quarters. And the Russian winter is notorious for being the worst terrible weather that anyone could ever imagine. And then they're forced to face this and Napoleon has to retreat. There's no shelter. There's nothing for them. Of the 500,000 men, it's reported about 300,000 to 400,000 of them die. Don't make it back. And so this effectively halts Napoleon's entire campaign. And it's his defeat. So he's then having to retreat from Russia with the Russians then coming back and also uh, causing problems as they're leaving. And in 1814, he abdicates the throne. Now, he's exiled to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean because he's done all these terrible things. But he escapes within a year and then returns to Paris. There was a new uh, French king called Louis XVIII who fled. And then Napoleon then believes that the Austrian, British, Prussian and Russians are preparing for war. So then he goes on a preemptive strike against Belgium, and it's called the Hundred Day Campaign. And this is where we find the Napoleon, he encounters a force in June of 1815, the, the British and Prussian forces who were camped out. Now, he was successful, but he didn't destroy them. And two days later, he's then come across another force, the Duke of Wellington. Now, Napoleon has 72,000 men. The Duke of Wellington has 68,000 men. And one of the unfortunate blunders that, that Napoleon does is the ground is wet. So Napoleon uses artillery, and that's heavy, and that would get bogged down. So he waits the morning for it to dry before he attacks. The problem is the army that he's defeated but not destroyed has time to come back and join the forces that he's attacking. This is the Battle of Waterloo, and Napoleon loses. So the flanking force beats him, and 25,000 Frenchmen are killed, 9,000 wounded, and Napoleon is forced to return to France, abdicates the throne to his son, and is surrendered, then surrenders to the British in July. My, my. Let's resume this investigation of the Bonaparte conspiracy. Where to now, Dr. Travis Brown? So when we left Napoleon, he had surrendered to the British in July of 1815. Now, Napoleon, the British clearly have seen him being exiled before and then returned. Uh, And so the British then sent him to St. Helena in the South Atlantic Ocean. Now, he's exiled with some of his supporters, the the Grand Marshal of the palace and his wife and, and servants. And look, when you read it, it seems like it seems like a holiday camp. It's it's quite strange, you know. His routine then of life is that he gets up at about ten a.m. for breakfast. He goes anywhere he wants on the island as long as it's accomplished, uh, accompanied by an English officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has a medical attendant who looks after him. He actually is from the the British military. Uh, he was an Irish doctor, the name of Doctor Barry O'Meara. And he'll become relevant a little bit later, but you know, have dinner about seven or eight uh, p.m. 
He enjoyed listening to classics that were read aloud and playing cards, and then he would go to bed by about midnight. Now, we start to recognize that there's uh, an illness. And so by around the end of 1817, we start to see that he's complaining of abdominal pain and discomfort. And Dr. Uh, Omirara is asked the, the British governor at the time, can he change Napoleon's living conditions? Now, there's clearly a little bit of a kinship happening that uh, Dr. Omirara is involved in because they say no deal. And then Dr. Omira accuses the British governor of, his name is Sir Hudson Lowe, of commanding him to shorten Napoleon's life. And so uh, the doctor's sacked, uh, replaced, uh, and then goes away. Uh, some other doctors, you know, one doctor comes and looks after him for a while, another doctor, they don't make any significant improvement in his health. And this abdominal pain and discomfort worsen. Uh, and then that's why what they talk about is where, you know, this abdominal discomfort that, you know, it's been suggested that the classic paintings of him holding his stomach is, is because he might have had abdominal pain. Wow. And so that's an interesting aside. I don't know if it's true, but that's been mentioned. And so it's, not, it's a few years later. So 1821, his illness gets rapidly worse. He's confined to bed. He's got worsening pain. He has nausea, night sweats, weight loss, diarrhea, complains of headaches and leg weakness and discomfort. And he describes his increasing fatigue. For me, every activity is a Herculean task. And by the end, the description of Napoleon is he has slurred speech and drenching night sweats. He's got these pale gums, lips, and nails. And on May the 5th, 1821, Napoleon dies. He's at the age of 51. And the day after his death, there is an autopsy. He's, uh, there are 16 observers, and they happen to be seven doctors. There's several French assistants, and also looked at by British soldiers. and. The following is an excerpt of the report of the autopsy findings. Report of appearances of dissection of the body of Napoleon Bonaparte. On a superficial view, the body appeared very fat. The lungs were quite sound. The pericardium was natural and contained about an ounce of fluid. The heart was of the natural size but thickly covered with fat. Upon opening the abdomen, the omentum was found remarkably fat, and on exposing the stomach, viscous was found the seat of extensive disease. Strong adhesions connected the whole superior surface, particularly about the pyloric extremity, to the concave surface of the left lobe of the liver, and on separating these, an ulcer, which penetrated the coats of the stomach, was discovered one inch from the pylorus, sufficient to allow the passage of the little finger. The internal surface of the stomach, to nearly its whole extent, was a mass of cancerous disease or scirrus portions advancing to cancer. This was particularly noticed near the pylorus. With the exception of the adhesions occasioned by the disease in the stomach, no unhealthy appearance presented itself in the liver. The remainder of the abdominal viscera were in a healthy state. So there was unanimous agreement that Napoleon had died of stomach cancer. 
uh, there was dark material found in the stomach was what we would call or most likely described today is if someone was to vomit that up, we call it hematemesis. So that's where blood mixes with the stomach acid, becomes sort of very dark and sort of this coffee ground material. Uh, and so that means, and that ulcer, most likely he's bled uh, and the adhesion to the uh, to the liver. And so the last six months of Napoleon's life, they, they noticed that, you know, the waist of his pants went from, you know, 43 inches to 38 inches. So for a man of, you know, 5'2", he's lost about 30 pounds or, you know, 13, 14 kilograms. So there's weight loss there as well. And in death, Napoleon wished for something. I wish my ashes to rest on the banks of the Seine, in the midst of that French people which I have loved so much. I die before my time, killed by the English oligarchy and its hired assassins. So the wish for him to be uh, taken to France and buried was ignored. Now, he was buried in a tomb at St. Helena uh, initially. Now, he was, I can't work out why, but he was buried in four caskets. The outer one was mahogany, which was the most exterior. He was then put in a lead one and in a wood one and then in a tin was the innermost. So there was a four caskets for for his uh, his burial yeah they did not want him coming back did they (laughs) not only that the grave was dug 10 feet deep had a tomb pretty much of made of slabs then was covered with another enormous slab and then topped with bricks cement clay and more stones now is this a burial fit for an emperor i'm not sure well it certainly was overspect i think lavishness adorned his life Why not? (laughs) Emmanuel Macron has marked the bicentenary of the death of Napoleon Bonaparte, France's best-known military leader and one of the founders of the modern republic. The president laid a wreath at Napoleon's tomb. But in 21st century France, Napoleon is a divisive figure. Mr Macron acknowledged a darker side in the legacy. Lucy Williamson has been looking at how Napoleon is remembered. All right, I've spent long enough underground now just contemplating Napoleon's resting place. Let's lift our gaze, Dr. Travis Brown. So we'll bring it back to you know, official documentation was pretty much he died of stomach cancer or gastric cancer. Now, the, the important part here is the diffuse mass or thickening of the stomach uh, lining that they, they mentioned. And look, if we look at gastric cancer, Around 90 years ago, it was the most common cause of cancer death worldwide. So, oh. yeah, it's not surprising. Uh, you know, in itself is completely possible, you know, in keeping with the symptoms that he had. And look, even now, it's still the second most common cause of cancer death worldwide. But the distribution is not uniform. Mm-hmm. And so you have really high incidence of, of gastric cancer in you know, Japan, China, Chile, Costa Rica. They can have up to 20 times higher levels than other countries. And so when we look at Western countries, though, the incidence has been reducing. Now, we're not exactly sure why. It's, it's unclear or uncertain reasons. And you know, an interesting point behind this is you know, if you look at migrants who go from high-risk countries to low-risk countries, if you have a first generation, so a migrant goes from one to the other, they maintain their high risk of gastric cancer. However, their children 
if they're born in the low incidence areas, have the low risk area associated. Does that suggest there's a dietary element or maybe just healthcare of it? Although Japan has yeah, exactly, so we're not sure, and the, it's theorised that there must be an environmental factor that is this early exposure creates the risk profile that you have. So, I mean, it's an interesting part. We also know that, you know, if you have a low socioeconomic category, if you're in that category, then you have a higher risk. So, but when we look at the incidence in Australia or the US, Australia has, of all cancers, gastric cancers only account for 1.5%. It's only 2.5% in the US. So we know there are some risk factors, things, you know, etiology uh, cause, like, you know, H. pylori, which we've discussed, you know, in previous podcasts. If people have persistent chronic infection, they get an increased risk of gastric adenocarcinoma. We believe there's an association with nitrates uh, in, in the food, so, you know, dried or smoked or salted food. And so when we look at the classification these days, we, you know, there's two classification systems. There's one called the Lauren system, which separates it into diffuse and intestinal. And, you know, if I can be, you know, looking at the information we have in front of us, it sounds like that Napoleon had a diffuse gastric carcinoma, uh, which is his cause of death. So the other classification system, which we won't go in much other than say there's a World Health Organization classification, which is a morphological description, really, which is, you know, they can be tubular, papillary, mucinous, poorly cohesive, or, or mixed. Now, the two kind of do work together, but it just depends on who's actually doing the classification. So the problem with gastric cancer, though, is often it can be asymptomatic in early stages. Uh, and so when we look at screening, you know, if we're screening high-prevalence countries, they can pick up 35% uh, early lesions, which is fantastic and cost-effective uh, because the problem is it's not worth it in low-prevalence countries just because you don't intervene early enough. It's not common enough to, for it to, to be cost-effective, unfortunately. Is the first question in the screening, are you a tyrannical leader? <laughs> well, it could be back then. might have mm. might have worked. But uh, when we look at the you know progression with it, this mimics... Uh, Napoleon, you said that abdominal pain, you know, progressive pain, nausea, vomiting, uh, iron deficiency. So when they were talking about his gums becoming pale, this is a late sign. This is most likely associated with anemia. Uh, you know, now they don't talk about a mass and they didn't find, he didn't have a large abdominal mass, so to speak, but that can also be a presenting symptom. They tend to be these days around 55 and we have a bit more of males than females. So the only problem with gastric carcinoma these days is the survival is poor. So if we find it early, it, it has an excellent greater than 90% five-year survival rate. The problem is it often presents late and people have a five-year survival of 25 to 30%. And so it's, it's one of those unusual cancers that it tends to spread directly in the abdomen as opposed to spreading everywhere. If it does spread, uh, you know, it will go via the blood vessels, hematogenous to the liver, but uh, it's generally through direct. And when we're actually staging it to see how bad this is or the prognosis for the, for the patient, 
you look at the depth of invasion, you look, are there nodes involved or are there distant metastases? The problem with gastric cancer is it's also radiation resistant. It, it, tend, it tends to not respond to treatment that we give it. So the final point of all this, and we come back to Napoleon, uh, and this is probably also a reflection of how we started, that it was the most common cancer. When we look at his history, his grandfather died of it. His father died of stomach cancer. His brother and three sisters. Now, that probably has less significance today than it does back then because family history is much more stronger. We don't have the environmental, clearly the environmental parts uh, now that we do then, but it's still significant. And so the, the whole point behind it, did Napoleon die? Yes, he did. But no story is complete until we actually touch on the conspiracy theories that have drawn out from this. Oh, you've left us with a cliffhanger before the last part of the show. Those men on grey horses are terrifying. They are the noblest cavalry in Europe and the worst led. That may be. That may be. But we'll match them with our lancers. I sense that many people just leaned forward to listen into this conspiracy theory. But, but one thing first, a reflection. If only his stomach cancer was early onset, just think how many lives could have been saved. <laughs> it's, it's interesting when you look at uh, dictators because here's a celebrated person who if they didn't live, if they hadn't have been born, how many lives would be here today? I mean, it's such an untrue, you know, uh, there's a, there's a quote that comes to mind uh, and I can't remember. Uh, there's a famous person said, you know, great men are often bad men. And, and that's the, that's the thing where you look at people like Alexander, the great Julius Caesar, Napoleon, you know, Geng uh, Genghis Khan, You, one of those things you sit there and just go, these people are celebrated today? And then you <laughs> look at them and just go, <laughs> is celebrated the right word when you actually look at their deeds? But you know, Napoleon fits into that category. So I think you're a great man. <laughs> actually, uh, we get to that point then when we look at the conspiracy around Napoleon. Now, if you go online, you will find these conspiracy theories. To be honest, they're, they're probably more prevalent than the actual cause of death. Uh, and, you know, so Napoleon, as we discussed, was buried in St. Uh, Helena. So at that point in time, there was a new, new king. This was the re the, the king of, you know, he turned out Louis XVIII, who had fled before when Napoleon had been exiled and came back. And there's, you know, after that, there was Charles X. The interesting thing is, no one was in a great rush to get Napoleon's body back to France. Mm. So his final wish was, I want to be buried there. And the powers that be that had replaced him were like, well, why would we want to? Well, they weren't Russian. <laughs> and so, you know, it ended up taking, it, was in, it wasn't until 1840 when they had Louis uh, Philippe, who was eventually had to be convinced uh, you know, this was 19 years after his death, to go and get Napoleon to, you know, uh, repatriate the body and bring it back to France. So eventually he was convinced and they agreed, and clearly the British agreed, and they went to St. Helena to dig it up, all, you know, 10 feet, you know, however many slabs, four caskets. 
and then they opened it up and inspected the body. And apparently it was well preserved, but then they put the body back into six caskets with, you know, soft soft iron, mahogany, uh, two more lead, and then one ebony, and then it was sealed in oak. The whole thing weighed 1.2 tonne. And then it was taken back to Paris, uh, and where it resides today in a sarcophagus on a green pedestal at the uh, chapel of uh, Saint Jerome. And but then that was that was the whole point. We come back to our uh, Doctor Barry uh, O'Meara, so the Irish doctor who cared for Napoleon. Mm. Now he was the one who claimed that the the British governor, you know, said, you know, shorten the life. Mm. Now he ended up writing a book in eighteen twenty two claiming that the British were behind Napoleon's death. And now, there was no proof, but this was his, you know, I'm, I'm amazed this guy lived. You sit there and just go, he, he's accusing a British governor of, you know, <laughs> of trying to take out, you know, uh, but, you know, so already we have a seed of, you know, actually he wasn't, he didn't die, he actually was killed. And strangely enough, it, you know, 1950, so over 100 years mm. Uh, he, he's been dead. Well, there's a there's a doctor Sten uh, Foschufand who uh, was clearly going through Napoleon's you know private papers and ended up putting the puzzles together uh, in you know 1950 and then realised that the symptoms that uh, Napoleon was experiencing there's 31 of uh, or 28 of 31 of them fit arsenic poisoning. Now, arsenic's a well-known, you know, poison of antiquity. And so he starts, you know, putting this together. Well, Na- Napoleon was a notorious hair-locked gifter. And so, so uh, this doctor ends up getting locks from 1816, 1817, and 1818, so the time of captivity, and testing the hair because yes. they can test it. And they found fatally high levels of arsenic in it. Now, when you start to look at, you know, oh, could it be acute arsenic poisoning? Well, what are the symptoms? You get, you know, severe headaches, abdominal pain, diarrhea and vomiting, muscle cramps. You will end up going into renal failure and hypertension. So, you know, if someone's been given, you know, chronic arsenic over their life, they'll get diarrhea and diabetes. They'll have an enlarged liver and fibrosis. Will they also invade their neighbors? <laughs> no, well, you never know. Actually, we'll come back to that. You know, but you're talking about vascular disease and hair loss, pigmented lesions, uh, what they call uh, lines on their fingernails, so these white lines on their fingernails. And they'll also have a, a you know, increased risk, particularly bladder cancer, of cancers, so skin, mm. liver, lungs. It's important that it doesn't mention gastric there. And so arsenic, as I said, is a well-known poison. It can be found in seawater, soil, volcanic, volcanic sediment. And uh, here's, here's the interesting point. If we were to test arsenic uh, sometime today, you know, people say, do you use blood? No, you don't use blood because, you know, the levels fall rapidly. So we actually test urine if we're worried about arsenic poisoning in, in a person. What were they testing? Well, they were testing hair that was over 100 years old. And it, it was, so people started to dig out a little bit more. And then what they ended up finding was the research tested hair of his lock of 1805 and also found high levels of arsenic oh, in it. So, right. And so then, you know, when you actually look at levels of arsenic in a 19th century home, it's apparently everywhere. And so you've got it in cosmetics, hair tonic, 
cigarettes, sealing wax, cooking pots, powders, rat poison, even cake icing has arsenic in it. <laughs> and so, so, you know, and then they also decide, okay, well, let's test other areas. Now, this is clearly not the person who has the theory, but they ended up testing Napoleon's son's hair, first wife, uh, who's Empress Josephine, 10 other people, and they all had high levels of arsenic uh, in, in their hair. And so it appears that 19th century Europeans just had much higher levels of arsenic in, in their bodies than, than we do these days. And so there was another conspiracy theory that, you know, when Napoleon was dug up, it wasn't Napoleon. It was someone else. And somehow wow. he'd gotten somewhere else. And, and you start to see that, that these are the seeds. And, and, I mean, the reason I bring this up is because conspiracy theories feel like they've been getting more and more and more. And, and to be honest, I, probably the internet has made it more prevalent or more in our minds. But conspiracy theories have been with us oh, forever. Yeah. And will continue forever. And the reason is, is because we love a good story. We love a mystery. We love knowing secrets. We love knowing things that we shouldn't know. And occasionally there's been conspiracies in the past that have been true. And so the exception proves the rule in these cases. And so everyone sort of sit there and go, well, it's a conspiracy. Well, not a lot of things aren't. <laughs> and in this case, Napoleon died of gastric cancer. Uh, but it's just an interesting point to bring up that conspiracy theories and what I realized is they are with us and they'll probably always be with us. Yeah, and I want to finish with one question. Napoleon goes to the GP towards the latter days. What would have been the pathological test that the GP might have sent to start the process without knowing all of this history or the conspiracy? What would have come across your microscope, Dr. The, Travis? The, what would have been the best part for him would have been to actually go to a, a gastroenterologist and have a scope and actually see. So when they talk about surveillance or you know uh, screening tests, they talk about taking a scope and actually look, looking down the stomach and seeing. And, and that's why when we're talking about finding early lesions, mm. we're talking about that it isn't it isn't fully invasive at that time. So when we're early, you take a biopsy of the lining of the stomach and you can see the mucosa, there's actually what we call dysplastic change. So it's becoming malignant. Now, if it's in situ, so if it's only just confined to the epithelium, you can take that all out. The patient's cured. And that's why we need to find it early because the best treatment is actually to take it all out and then it's gone. Well, there you go. So if you are a GP listening to this, and you do have a tyrannical despot as one of your patients, send their sample to ClinPath because had that been removed early, maybe he would have settled down and not caused so many deaths. There's a conspiracy theory in reverse. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. 
Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.